Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and this is the All By Him Say Elf edition. I know you guys love it when I sing, especially Graham. Every single time he looks a bit embarrassed for me. I'm hoping you actually sing the entire half hour. Oh, really? With me today, Claire Clancy, who's down with me at the ledge right now. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Breckenridge. Yes. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. And Graham Thompson. Good morning. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about... Derek Fildebrand. I know that probably comes as a surprise to most of you. He has, of course, um, resigned from the UCP caucus and is sitting as an independent all by himself eventually when the legislature reconvenes. If indeed he is still an independent, then I guess we'll wait and see. Um, We're also going to talk briefly about some drunk driving legislation here in Alberta that has changed. So first of all, Let's go to Derek Fildebrand, because, of course, we did talk about this last week, and, Graham, you didn't want to stop talking about it last week, did you? <laughs> when I tried to move to pipelines, you were like, no! Well, there was more shoes to drop, and we'd been hearing things about him, of course, and this week we had him apparently double-dipping on his expenses, and then the hits kept on coming. And the thing is, that was Monday. Tuesday, even before we got word of the, um, well, at least publicly, uh, again, we knew about this, uh, for a few days, just investigating these things. Before it was made public about the hit-and-run charge, the um, interim leader of the party, the UCP, mm-hmm. uh, Nathan Cooper, came out, and he said on Tuesday, um, this is you know, regarding the double-dipping, uh, this, is, this is concerning, and this is a pattern of behavior. And you could tell at that point things had shifted. Yeah, the tone did certainly change this week, didn't it? And we heard from Brian Jean, who said it was up to the, um, the people of, of uh, Strathmore, the writing to determine the future of uh, Derek Filterbrand. And the implication there was he might actually lose his nomination in next election. So you could tell on a Tuesday before the final shoe had dropped regarding the hit and run that things are moving against Filterbrand. At that point, it was a matter of time before he was pushed or he jumped from caucus. And he jumped. Well, he had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was on the gangplank mm. with the uh, UCP behind him, and he had a choice. You know, we, we can actually push you off this, or you can jump and say it was your own decision. And there was a lot of calls going back and forward at night between Filterbrand and his advisors, who kept telling him t- to look more contrite, look more <laughs> sympathetic. And they kept telling him this. But, yeah, he was blaming Brian Jean for this. He was Mm -hmm. blaming the administration in his office for the errors. He was blaming the media. He's still blaming the media. Yes, I'm sure they all will. But um, So you're off his Christmas card list. I guess so. I never got one last year, so Well, maybe he was, you know, reining in his expenses. He wasn't sending them (laughs) out. (laughs) Dave, did any of this that happened uh, this week, I mean, it was a pretty epically quick kind of resignation. Did it surprise you at all? I think the whole thing surprised me. You know, I'm sure you talked about some of this last week, the notion of the Airbnb thing and the the notion of someone who was a, uh, seen as a taxpayer's watchdog double dipping and the optics of the even the, the small meal expenses. It's a small amount of money. We're not mm-hmm. talking about Alison Redford levels of spending here, but the fact that he had set himself up as the the guy who's going to watch your pocketbook uh, and hold the government to account. Uh, that was what was most surprising for me. And I guess the the fact that you had three things in quick succession was a little surprising, but that he had to go after those three things wasn't. Um, you know, I, I, the party is too new and there's too much at stake for the UCP right now 
to have let him stick around. Mm. Graham, you mentioned his constituency association earlier. So they've come out and said, you know what? This is just mudslinging in the media. It's low-level mudslinging, and you're just basically saying terrible things about our poor Derek, and we've got his back. Um, the people of Strathmore Brooks, well, at least the constituency association or the Wild Rose constituency association, they heart him. Yeah, well, they, of course. Um, but the issue here is interesting how they can turn a blind eye to the Airbnb is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, um, the issue, again, uh, about the um, double dipping, it was a mistake. Okay, fine. But again, he's a guy who said, I'll always be careful with taxpayers' money. And just to refresh everyone's memories, in case you weren't following this along this week, um, there were nine occasions on which Derek Fildebrand claimed for a, a meal with receipts, but he also claimed for the per diem for the same meal. Um, there were also a couple of others that got caught up in this as well. Jason Nixon did, did it three times. However, he actually gave me explanations as to the exact times that he did it. So, you know, he had lunch by himself and then he went to a lunch meeting, didn't eat there, but covered the bill of his constituents. Um, and Graham Sucher from the NDP as well did it once. Then yesterday, late yesterday, the UCP have come out and said that they've audited every single MLA expenses and they're paying $556.23 back to the Legislative Assembly office, so back to the taxpayer, basically. But a funny thing on that list was that uh, Wes Taylor had accidentally underclaimed by $9.15. So it's noted on the list of discrepancies that he didn't quite get enough. Now, he's not going to go and claim it, but he just wanted it noted in case anyone who maybe happens to be a journalist goes back through his expenses and finds uh, that little tiny he discrepancy. Um, he is owed $9. Think about this. A, a bigger issue here is how the MLAs are really self-policing when it comes to their expenses mm. and things like that. Now, the UCP is saying 550 some odd dollars. Now, okay, fine, but we don't, we'll never really know the truth about any of this because they are self-policing. When it comes to things like meals, uh, they are allowed to buy meals for um, stakeholders and constituents. So they could every day claim per diem plus meals that they paid for for Joe constituent, and we will never know if, in fact, they're double-dipping. And these guys can set their own wages, their own benefits. Um, we saw, you think back to 2008, must have been, with, with Stelmack. He won the election. They come in, and then Cabinet votes itself a huge pay increase. They have a lot of power to do mm. what they want. Now, that was Cabinet, but the Member Services Committee that deals with all the members, uh, they get to pick and choose the, their pay increases. Right now it's tied to inflation, basically, but they can pick and choose. And actually finding out um, the truth behind their expenses is very difficult because very often they don't have to give receipts. For example, the, the, um, the accommodation allowance, mm. which is $1,900 a month, um, they must apparently give in like a lease, whatever. So let's say you're paying $1,000 a month for, for rent. The, all the other expenses, your cable, your parking, whatever, they don't have to give receipts. And if, if they were caught, there's no penalty, and no one does an audit. So the, the, the feeling here, of course, is that they're elected officials, they are honorable people, so they're help- Well, it's in the front of their name, the honorable, honorable blah, blah, blah. And there's a reason for that. And there's mm. an, is uh, there? Yes, there is. Tradition? Yeah, tradition. <laughs> in terms of, you know, in question period, you, you never try and impinge the uh, honor of another member. And the, the, <laughs> it's very knight-like, isn't it? Going to slap him in the face the with medieval. a glove and declare a duel. But it's very much a case where um, the members are seen to be honest until proven otherwise. And that's part of the, of the tradition of our system of government.
if they start this new tracking system, it's still self-policing, right? In terms of tracking their own mm-hmm. expenses. So what does that really do in terms of accountability on the small things? Yeah, good question. They've been bringing in an electronic claims process for quite some time. It's been underway. We were talking with the Speaker's Office about this uh, this week. But in talking with the Speaker's Office, it's still not going to make a heck of a lot of difference. All it is is they're tracking it now electronically as opposed to doing it on paper. (laughs) I mean, that might make it easier for me to search so that I'm not scrolling through pages and pages of expenses and receipts until my eyeballs bleed, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be more... um, Transparent. Yeah, more transparent. And accountable. And that's been a problem. You wrote about this on Monday, but every decade... There is uh, usually a, a scandal about their expenses, and it mm. kind of dies down. But at the end of the day, the members are responsible for setting their own guidelines. And um, this is problematic. But you think most, politi- most politicians are honest, and they're in there for the right reason. And most are, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, with Filterbrand, I agree uh, with Dave that uh, the expense things are very small, but there's this optics, especially around this particular MLA. But the Airbnb... Like getting basically a free apartment from the government, oh, sorry, from the taxpayer, from the taxpayer, and then renting it out and pocketing the money. Like there's, it just looks grubby. It does, and I, I'm just, I'm shocked as to how he could think there was no nothing wrong with this. I know his wording was, it didn't cost the taxpayers anything. Well, that's not the issue here. The issue is you're using <laughs> well, a taxpayer, a taxpayer funded uh, benefit to line your own pockets. That's not right. Yeah. We actually got an actual, seemed like an actual apology this week as well from Derek Fildebrand. Tuesday night when he resigned around, or sent out his statement about resigning around nine o'clock at night, I suppose it happened. Um, I was ready to go to bed, but unfortunately then I had to write another story, but you know. You mean fortunately. I mean, fortunately, yeah. It's news. I don't, and you're in the news business. That's right. <laughs> there you go. I don't value my rest at all. Good. I need my damn beauty sleep, Graham. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was actually quite a, you know, I'm a flawed man. Everyone there, makes mistakes. There was some contrition in it, but he also talked about media distractions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, he still lobbed a couple of those in there. Um, but hey, so he's apologized. I pres- The UCP is done. Their own look-through expenses. I assume everyone just wants to dust their hands off and and move along. But it does raise a good point about the need for more oversight. I think you know, back was it ninety two the big housing thing? Yeah. Was that the auditor general or was that the speaker? That was the AG's the report. AG's report, and then the aura of power report on uh, Allison Redford. Yeah. Um, those were auditor general reports. The, you know, I think it raises a point that perhaps the whole expense system needs a good once over by the auditor general or somebody, an external auditor. I don't know, but um, if you have these things that happen at a pretty regular interval, even if it is a few years, there's obviously a problem, right? The, there's obviously. Uh, not enough oversight or not enough transparency in the process. And the problem is in terms of access to that information, I mean, um, there should be some kind of like online tracking system so that journalists can at least see Mm. where money is being spent. And you can. It just takes hours and hours and hours to kind of scroll through and compare. Yeah. Because you have to physically do it. 
And in terms of the Airbnb, I mean, what other what expenses are we missing in terms of what MLAs are, are spending on? And with the Airbnb thing too, now let's not forget, uh, Derek Fildebrand told me that other MLAs are doing it. So the NDP called around the entire mm-hmm. caucus and that said... That night, on the Wednesday <laughs> night when you broke the story, the NDP, before they made any comment at all, called every one of their MLAs that night and said, are you renting your apartment, your taxpayer-funded apartment? The UCP, though, have sent out an email to everybody uh, and they're yet to hear back from everyone, so they are yet to be able to confirm whether or not anyone has actually been, else has been doing it. Of course, Fildebrand maintains that, well, I mean, I asked him once because since he's turned his phone off, he's not answering anymore. If there are other MLAs doing this, then really it's it does not look good to have a delay in terms of disclosure. They should probably come forward now and explain. Uh, going back to the point we, uh, you were asking me before about um, Filter Brand's CA, his uh, writing association, yeah. is supporting him. And, you know, and fine, uh, well, that's not a big surprise. He is quite well-liked in, the, in the conservative um, movement. Um, I think that, of course, his reputation has taken a bit of a beating. People, Some people still stand by him regardless. Uh, okay, it's fine. Um, I did a call on this week. Stand of, by your man. That, that's next week's, I think, uh, <laughs> topic. I've got to stop torturing people with my terrible singing. <laughs> Graham just nodding. Okay. Um, Sorry, Graham, to interrupt you with uh, Tammy. But this, is, this issue here about hypocrisy when it comes to Filterbrand, you know, being the, the, the taxpayer... Um, Hawk, mm. you know, defending people's tax-paying dollars, but also um, he was the one who would be very quick to point fingers at other MLAs, saying that they should resign or it's time for recall legislation to get rid of them. Did that with Deborah Drever, who had made some juvenile-type social media postings before she was elected, mm. and those came out one after another, and then she was forced to sit as an independent, and then she came back after a year into the NDP fold, into the caucus. But Filderbrand did these things while an elected official. And you do get a sense that you know he was so quick to condemn others, and now he's asking for a second chance. You know, I'm a flawed man. Give me a chance to uh, make good on this. So to me, it'd be good to have a sense of maybe humility is too strong a word, or maybe it's a good word, to describe what he should be feeling right now, and he, then he can, come, he can come back a better MLA. And I'm against recall legislation for all kinds of reasons. It's a gimmick. But it, to me, it should show the UCP that they're so quick to condemn others that when they're caught in the same trap, it can be more difficult for them to try and wiggle out. It's, he's not asking for a second chance, really, though. He is asking for a third chance. He was already <laughs> removed, was briefly removed yeah. from caucus until was, into, yeah. in, the, yeah. in the Wild Rose caucus because of some uh, juvenile social media postings. <laughs> um, and he was caught up, and, and Brian, there was like a standoff between him and, right. and Brian Jean at the time, and I think Brian Jean blinked ultimately. <laughs> Yeah, because of the pressure that Filterbrand supporters put on yeah. Brian Jean. So, much pressure. so he was never actually ever kicked out of the caucus. He just, it was a few days over the weekend yeah. where there was no sitting, and the next day or the next week he was back in. Yeah, he wasn't there on the Monday, if I remember right. correctly. But mm-hmm. then, um, And his desk hadn't been moved, no. though. And that's how you knew it wasn't going to last for long. <laughs> it was a temporary was thing. They said he had yeah. to be brought back yeah. in, and his desk was never moved. So he was never actually really removed from caucus. But he was given a warning shot. And again... People who know him, people in caucus say he does not learn from these things, that he tends to go off on his own thinking he, he 
marches to a different drummer that the, the rules don't apply to him, which meant that he tended to aggravate people in his own caucus. So by last Tuesday, when he was in real trouble, the caucus turned and said, this is really troubling. And by that night, they told him, you got to get out or we'll push you. So now that he is, he has resigned from caucus, he is, of course, sitting as an independent, if he makes any comments, it will be, what, as an independent mm-hmm. MLA, which is so strange for Derek Fildebrand because, of course, he was one of the biggest cheerleaders for the unity movement. I mean, he, he loved unity. He, he did a lot of work to drum up support for the yes vote. And now it's it'll be down to whoever ends up UCP leader as to where Derek Fildebrand also ends up. Right, because uh, he's being so critical of Brian Jean. If Brian Jean wins the leadership, you've got to think that Fildebrand's political career will be the backbenches forever. Mm. He's been a big booster of Jason Kenney, and I think if um, Kenney wins, uh, there's a chance, with a big chance, that uh, he'll be uh, scrubbed clean of this stink and then brought back you know, a year, but like the Deborah Drever situation. Mm. But yeah. Deborah Drever wasn't made, you know, a cabinet minister quick smile, was she? She's still sitting on the back benches and doesn't say a whole lot, although she did introduce that bill about uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, his career from here, I'm interested to see where it goes. A lot depends on how he behaves himself the next year. If there is that sense he's learned a lesson from this, as opposed to being the same old Derek. Now, I wanted to ask you briefly as well, um, about the now the court charge here. So he's facing a charge for a hit and run on a vehicle. It was a parked vehicle, so there was nobody hurt. It was mm. just a strictly property damage. Yes, correct. Just making making it clear. <laughs> making it clear. Which is minor, but as someone who had their uh, rear fender uh, heavily dented in the parking <laughs> lot at Fort Edmonton Park a couple of years ago, uh, it's a big annoyance. I you know I can't swear on the podcast, but it it. You can. <laughs> I cursed. A, I cursed a lot when I walked back to my car at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things that has come up about that, Derek Fildebrand says that covering that court case has crossed the line from public to private. What are your thoughts on that? I, <laughs> I feel that if a public official is uh, facing a charge from a public body, uh, it's well within the public's interest and rights to cover it, even if it is a minor charge. Yes, would we go if he had a speeding ticket? Probably not. But again, it's the question of you hit somebody's car, potentially do damage to it, and decide, I'm just going to leave. And I'm not saying he did that because the case is still before the courts. But in, in my again, I speak from my own personal experience. Someone scraped and damaged my car, Thankfully, I had decent insurance, no fault insurance, so it didn't count against mine. But someone did visible damage to my vehicle and decided to leave. I was angry. I was really angry. What kind of person does that? I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that without leaving a note or Mm -hmm. information. I'd own up to it. And so the allegation is that he didn't. I think that's in the public interest. That speaks to... Character. Yeah. No, I agree. Completely agree with this. Um, this is not a speeding ticket. Okay, you get caught radar, photo radar. Okay, fine, not a big deal. Of course, then you go to things like um, Peter Goldring, who was um, charged with failure to blow. Yeah. He actually stepped down from caucus. This is a really serious charge. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that this charge alone would have meant he should step down. It's relatively minor, but I agree. It's an issue of character here, that if you allegedly, if you hit somebody and you drive off without leaving your information on that car, then that does speak to an issue of ethics and are you dependable and trustworthy because you've been given a lot of trust 
uh, by the public. You're a public official. And I think it's really, really important that this story um, be covered. And we'll see, another thing about this is interesting about him is that he was defending himself in court. Mm. He didn't get a lawyer. And uh, now he has a lawyer. And, it's, of course, people who are, uh, found out about this who are his friends were saying to him, what are you doing? Hire a lawyer. Because he went to court uh, completely, apparently unprepared, didn't know what he was doing. And this, again, speaks to the issue about him thinking that he can get away with things when, in fact, there's rules for all of us and we must obey them. This is actually a really good segue to something I want to speak about. Claire, we were talking about this yesterday in the office. Now, Claire and I both used to uh, live in and work in Saskatchewan. And, of course, the Deputy Premier there, Don McMorris, was done for drink driving. Sorry, for drunk driving, as it's called in Canada, as I am continually reminded by Graham. Um, (laughs) And... He That, of course, was a court case that needed to be covered. He was absolutely plastered. Like, he hadn't just had, you know, maybe two glasses of wine and got in his car and was a little bit over. No, this was the next morning, and he was absolutely plastered. So what happened there, Claire? Well, he also was in a government vehicle, I think, which also makes it <laughs> somewhat different. But it the the point still stands. When you're a public official, you know that um, that you're you're under scrutiny constantly. And um, it was especially bad for uh, for McMorris because um, he was also in charge of uh, drink driving legislation. <laughs> yeah, he was the minister for liquor and gaming. Right. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so he ended up, uh, yeah, McMorris, he ended up stepping down as deputy premier after that, but he kept his seat. So, I mean, you know, who knows where someone's career can go after that, but it definitely doesn't look good. Yeah, and he issued a very kind of very I'm very 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 sorry kind of statement, and I'm gonna go get some help. And but initially, what was interesting was his um, his initial statements were to the effect that he had been drinking the night before, mm. and so and you know didn't realize that his blood alcohol was quite so high the day after. Yeah, because he was watching football with a buddy, wasn't he? And then he uh, had got on got on the piss, as we say in Australia, and then the next morning got in his car and um, got done for drink driving. But that does lead to some new Yes, that's a great segue. How's that for a segue? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Graham, don't roll your eyes. That was a good segue. It was it's wonderful. I'm just, I'm looking at the heavens thinking, you must be um, divinely inspired <laughs> to get that segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Yeah, so what, what did the government announce this week? Uh, so earlier this week, just, uh, Justice Minister Kathleen Ganley uh, came down and said the Alberta government won't be appealing a decision um, whereby in May uh, the court struck down a law saying that police could uh, suspend licenses indefinitely when um, impaired drivers or suspected impaired drivers were pulled over. Uh, so what that means is that... Um, for the next year, if an impaired driver is pulled over until May 2018, um, police are still able to suspend licenses. But within that time frame, the Alberta government needs to come up with new legislation so that as of May 2018, that can no longer happen. And um, Ganley kind of talked about the fact that uh, they're going to look at uh, laws in other jurisdictions. So, for example, in British Columbia in 2015, they changed the laws so that um, if you're pulled over for impaired driving, um, there are a number of administrative sanctions that um, that come into play instead of criminal sanctions, which is which is what uh, is happening in Alberta. So when you're pulled over, your um, your license is taken away and then you're waiting for um, a court conviction. And um, in May, the courts had said that 
it was unconstitutional because you're basically convicting someone before before they're going to court. Uh, but anyway, in BC, what happens is uh, now you're pulled over and administrative sanctions include things like um, your vehicle's impounded immediately, you're given a 30-day license suspension, and, um, and, and you're also uh, forced to take a remedial course. Now, this is until May 2018, right? Yes. But it's... It's a constitutional issue. Right. So how are they justifying doing something against the Constitution for a good year? Well, when the when the court decision was made, they gave the Alberta government um, a year in order to come up with new legislation. Um, so there's no kind of legal issue in taking that time. I know that there have been a lot of comments online of people kind of asking, how can you still suspend licenses when you know it's un- un- unconstitutional? Um, but it gives time for new legislation to come into play. I'm baffled by that. I really am. (laughs) Just the idea that the court says, what you're doing is unconstitutional, stop doing it. Mm. And then the government says, okay, we're going to keep doing it until we figure out what we're going to do next. And maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it just doesn't look like the right thing to do. And I, I get that drunk driving is a touchy issue, and I get there are people... I'm sure there are a lot of people in the public who don't have any sympathy for someone who's charged with drunk driving and would love to see their license taken away until they deal with their court case. But that's not how our justice system typically works. You are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And by taking someone's license away, which is typically the punishment for an impaired driving condition plus a fine, possible jail time, but typically you lose your license. So you're handing out the sentence for drunk driving at when someone is charged. And what's really worrying about it as well is that um, people are uh, inclined to plead guilty even if they don't believe that they committed the crime because it means they get their vehicle back sooner, um, which is often a consideration. You know, if you need your vehicle to go to work and you know that pleading guilty will get it back sooner, then, um, you know, that can be an easy choice for people. So that's, you know, that's why the court decided it was unconstitutional because it really doesn't give you that presumption of innocence. Well, that's what the the intent of the law apparently was. There were there were apparently internal justice memos that said that, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was an incentive to get people to plead guilty. The courts are backed up as it is, and we've written stories about how there aren't enough crown prosecutors, there aren't enough judges. Our court system is clogged. And so if you had a choice between waiting six months uh, to you know, plead guilty, get your sentence, get your license back in six months or waiting a year and a half to go to trial to try and prove your innocence because we are entitled that right to defend ourselves at trial. People may be more inclined to take the six months and I don't necessarily think that's right. The government was obviously going through this, you know, this court case. So could they not have taken that time to perhaps come up with a plan of attack about what they might do? Because they could, this is not unexpected. This This was a bad law to begin with. Mm -hmm. It came in five years ago. It's under, I think it was under Redford, I believe. So it was a bad law to begin with. There was all kinds of cases waiting to be challenged. We knew it was going to be challenged and likely it would be struck down. It's unconstitutional. <laughs> and why the government hasn't spent, even though it's a new government, they've had two years to figure out this could likely be struck down. What's our plan B? There's no plan B. They're acting as if, oh, my God. This is out of nowhere. What the heck happened here? <laughs> this has completely caught us by surprise. We had no idea this was going to be challenged. This is a problem that they were not prepared they should have been prepared so when it was struck down they said here's our plan b 
There's no plan B, and that just shows, I think, bad planning on the government's part, well, it's at both, the very least. It's both the NDP and the Tories. The mm-hmm. Tories were criticized for it at the time when they brought it in, that it was unconstitutional and likely to be challenged. Do you think that they'd have lawyers in the Justice Department who may try and come up with an alternate solution should it be struck down by the courts that they could have ready-made for when that possibly happened? But they didn't, obviously, because we're at this point now. <laughs> when it's a good year until they do Was she asked that, Claire? When it came into Sorry, play, was Ga- no, was Ganley asked about why they didn't have a plan B ready? Uh, yeah, basically, they they kind of said they were still considering appealing the decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, but there were legal risks in terms of actually making that appeal, and they thought that it would be struck down, which it would have been. But they then still have a didn't plan. have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have a plan B, plan C. If you're smart, if lawyers are always making plans for you know just in case things yeah. don't go their way. But yeah, it just shows um, just I think from day one. This has been a problem for the PCs and the NDP. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bad decision. The court, the court decision is a good decision, but the way the government's handled it is bad. What's ironic, too, is uh, Graham was talking about how it was just a bad law. Apparently, I spoke to some advocates from um, anti-drunk driving groups, and they were saying that suspending a license actually does nothing to prevent the behavior from continuing. So that's why in British Columbia, the laws that they've put in place with like the remedial course and impounding a vehicle, those are apparently much more likely to um, actually change someone's behavior to prevent them from drinking and driving in the future. And with that, we're going to move on to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Claire, what do you have for us this week, mate? Well, um, I'm assuming everybody's been reading lots of uh, Charlottesville coverage, um, but I did read a really amazing piece that I wanted to recommend called um, We Just Don't Feel Like We Belong Here from Mother Jones. And um, yeah, it's it's just a really wonderful piece written from the perspective of a visible minorities living in uh, small town America and what uh, the violence in Charlottesville has really uh, come to mean and um, the difficulties of, yeah, of that situation and feeling as though you don't belong in your own country. Nice. Dave? I've been all week uh, in fringe mode, so I'm, I've been prepping. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing some reviews for the, the papers, and so I haven't really done a lot of reading this week um, other than my book on the train. Um, so I'm going to recommend The Fringe. It is a wonderful <laughs> Edmonton festival. It is the oldest fringe in Canada. It is a great time. There's hundreds of shows. There's something for everybody. Um, I saw a really good show last night called Gemini. Uh, starring uh, Governor Ge- Governor General Award-winning playwright Vern Thiessen. Um, it's a great two-hander. It's in the basement of uh, El Cortez. And Paula has a... Paula point. has a show. Yes, yeah. Onions and Garlic. Paula, who is our usual... Um Usually on the podcast. And actually, my husband, Yuri, he's covering Fringe. Mm-hmm. So he just basically bombs from one show to another on his bicycle and then writes reviews about it. He loves covering Fringe. It's fun. Yeah. Best job. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to recommend a couple of things from Australia, again, because my country is a freaking mess. First of all, it's it's I don't know if anyone's been seeing this story, but in Australia right now, there is a citizenship row going on so that if you hold dual citizenship, even if you don't know that you do... You can't technically run for for office. Turns out the deputy prime minister has unwittingly been a, a New Zealand dual citizen this entire time. So um, and that doubly disqualifies him in Australia, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so there's a really good explainer in the Times about what exactly our laws are and the kerfuffle that this has caused. Because I think it's been like five politicians have been forced to resign so far. The deputy prime minister is launching a court challenge, though. And while I'm back home, also a really quick read on. Pauline Hansen. She is 
Uh, I won't say my personal thoughts on her. She is the one nation senator um, who hates immigration Asians and Muslims, basically. She went into the parliament dressed in a burqa for a stunt. Yeah. So anyway, I found a couple of really good reads and analysis pieces about that. She just, yeah. Australia, what a place. Just when you think Pauline Hansen can't do anything crazier. Yeah, she goes and does that. Ugh. Graham? Hey, speaking of the Fringe, quickly, uh, shout out to my hometown, Edinburgh, the original Fringe city. hey It's on right now. So you can't make it to the Edmonton Fringe. <laughs> <laughs> Hop a the plane. Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> and Edinburgh is a beautiful city. It so. is a great city. Um, my um, good stuff actually came from you, Emma. You sent me that link yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, it was uh, a very funny, very short sat- satire piece in The Atlantic, I believe. And it was uh, written by somebody about the uh, so-called eclipse coming up. You know, that the mainstream <laughs> scientists say it's an eclipse. This is just a way for them to sell more of those eclipse glasses and make money off this. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. But the scientific, all these things they can figure out a, a are the clips coming? Who the hell knows if it's actually true? So it was actually done really tongue-in-cheek. It was a, a satire piece. I thought it's very short. It's worth reading. And you have the link already. I do have the link already. Thank you guys so much for joining me, Claire, Breck, and Thompson. Wow, I shouldn't have done it that way. Claire, Dave, and Graham, as other people know you, I suppose. And Sean, who is here to film some of this and put it online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all the past episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also sign up to SoundCloud, iTunes and TuneIn Radio to get all the latest episodes streamed right to your device because technology rules. Hopefully you join us this time next week on the Press Gallery. Thank you.